Wait, what am I saying? <laughs> You're listening. Oh. Right. You're, You're listening, listening to. <laughs> You're listening to discourse. 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 From, from from NPR. NPR. Amaranek Public Radio. Hi, I'm Gonzalo Barragan from Amaranek Public Radio. Our guest today is our beloved history teacher, Mr. Peter Green. High school is a stressful place for students. It's a fact. But one way to combat this is through having an energetic and fun classroom environment. That is where Mr. Peter Green shines bright. He is that type of teacher who can make learning fun. Mr. Green is one of our many history teachers here at Mamaroneck High School. But what sets his classes apart is his supernatural energy, combined with his comical, laid-back, yet still on-point personality. He really lines up the classroom. His positiveness and passion for history and teaching will keep you focused until the bell rings. We brought him in to share his thoughts about history and teaching. We will also touch a few other topics, but other than that, history and teaching will be our main topic of the day. Here's our conversation from Friday, October 18th. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. How are you today, Mr. Green? I'm good, Gonzalo. How are you doing? Pretty good. So our topic today is mostly about teaching and history, which you are an expert at. And so before we get into that, could you uh, give us a quick biography about you? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in a town called Stony Point, New York, uh, across the river in Rockland County. Still live there with my wife and two children. I own a home. I started teaching in Rockland County at a Catholic school called Albertus Magnus in 2006. And uh, I taught there for seven years, and I've taught at Mamaroneck for seven years. So for 14 years, I've been a teacher. It's an important part of my life. Great. And so if you weren't a teacher, what job would you have liked to have and why? I originally went to college uh, and studied politics, and my, my degree is actually in politics and history. So I, uh, I worked in politics out of college. I didn't come, become a teacher until I was about 26. And I really tried to make a go of it in that, in that career, but um, it, it kind of got off to a slow start. I was working as a fundraiser, which is not super rewarding work. Asking people for money is, can get tiresome, <laughs> uh, even if it's for a cause you believe in. And it wasn't really kind of doing the things I wanted it to do, so I decided to kind of go in a different direction. And uh, you know, transitioning from working in politics to studying history, is, it, it's not too far apart. And uh, I had the creden- I had the education to do it, and uh, and I finally found a way to talk about history and politics all day. Yeah, politics and uh, history are very intertwined. Yeah, cer- certainly intertwined. A lot of the way we teach the history here is um, it is political. So uh, rise and fall of governments, political revolutions, organization of states, wars, like all that really lends itself to a political analysis. And politics is part of the curriculum. And you look at our very uh, active uh, AP government program. Yep. Uh, so you have a very energetic style of teaching. How did you come up with this teaching style? Um, the style is really kind of just me. Uh, it's me on steroids <laughs> for sure. Uh, as I started teaching and became more comfortable in front of the class, I kind of manifested my personality. Um, I consider myself to be a funny person. I, uh, I do make a lot of jokes at all the time. I would agree. Uh, thank you, Gonzalo. I appreciate it. And I kind of just let that permeate my teaching style, it's not, um, it, I do view teaching as a performance and I, I am, while he's never been a performer, I was a musician and I was a public speaker. 
And I really feel that those skills set me up for this. I feel very comfortable in front of an audience. And I think that comes through in class. And I think the jokes just kind of lighten it up. It can be a little dry otherwise. So I feel sometimes, you know, when you're teaching a lesson about the Counter-Reformation, you got to jazz it up a little bit. I try. <laughs> <laughs> well, your trying is very good. It definitely uh, I, keeps the class interesting and going. I appreciate that. I really do. I really appreciate that, Gonzalo. And, um, you know, as time goes by, you know, everything changes. This is like a fact about history. Yeah. And so how do you think history and teaching will change in the near future? I think one of the biggest changes I've seen even in the 14 years of me doing this is a greater willingness to hear from marginalized voices right, and look at groups of people that were marginalized in history and, and hear their story come through a little more clearly in addition to the, kind of the main political narrative of history, which I think is still important, but also recognizing that there is this vast majority of people who were for a variety of reasons, whatever they were, class, race, gender, um, locked out. And their story really never got told or was intentionally not told. And I think one of the things we've been willing to do here at Mamaroneck and just kind of more broadly in New York is to kind of tell that story a little more and, and introduce – I teach topics now in, in 10th grade history that I, that I never taught uh, really wasn't emphasized when I first started teaching just 14 years ago. So it's not like you know back in my day. It's really not that long ago. But the certain topics that I feel receive a lot more attention now, and I think rightly so. Is there anything about history that like really bugs you or that you really dislike? So one of the one of the things when you study history is you, to some extent, you got to take somebody's word for it. So one of the things that can come up in history is um, is relativism, and and also just a, an almost unhealthy amount of skepticism. So at some point after you assess the sources, you have to at least um, you have to just kind of take it for what it is and make your own judgments. So so that what I'm trying I'm trying to get to is incessant conspiracy theorist stuff about history like makes me crazy. Um, so people on the flimsiest of evidence um, dismiss the vast majority of historical scholarship in favor of some kind of cockamamie idea about some grand international Illuminati conspiracy of frog people who are trying to take over the world. It makes me crazy, 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 crazy. Because um, it's just not rooted in, um, history comes from the Greek word for investigation. So it, it's not rooted in investigation. It's rooted in either politics or some kind of myopia or insanity or pathology. I don't know what, but uh, that stuff it creeps into history and a lot of times it's passed off as history. And if you just watch a history channel lineup about ancient aliens and such and such conspiracy theory or the Illuminati or the Knights Templar, everybody just needs to chill with that and kind of like look at history more objectively. Well, now let's make a basically a 180 flip now <laughs> into uh, teaching. So what do you believe are essential traits needed in order to be a prolific teacher? So I think you do have to um, you have to like the students. <laughs> this is a, this is kind of an issue. it sounds obvious, but you do have to like them, and you have to try and make some effort to understand. Them. And uh, you don't necessarily have to agree with their worldview, but you do have to at least understand it um, and have some empathy for them. I went to high school too. You know what I mean? We all did, yeah. and uh, it's kind of a universal experience. And I always try and remember that. Um, both the good and the bad of high school when I'm teaching. 
which is one of the reasons I so um, aggressively keep my class on task, because as a student, I was perhaps not always on task. Um, so I like to really make sure that that the class is moving. So that's something I think is really important. I think interest and love of the content is important because if you're trying to engender some enthusiasm for the subject matter in your students, you have to have such enthusiasm. <laughs> Otherwise, you just seems like you're going through the motions, which is a dangerous place to be as a teacher. And I think you really need um, some creativity and you like really need to think about how you want to present it. And I think the last thing you need is you really need energy grading oh my god the grading um <laughs> it can be it can be uh it can be burdensome so you need some energy you need yeah. some patience and some energy need some five hour energy <laughs> that's right man sometimes it comes to that uh <laughs> your stack of research papers you gotta you gotta really strap in for that <laughs> yeah in your class you sometimes say goodbye in different languages that makes me wonder if you speak another language apart from english and if so how did you learn how to speak it i um i I don't speak another language. I read Spanish pretty well. I took it for, for three years of college. Um, my speaking of it is not great. Uh, my accent's, like, really horrible. <laughs> but I can read it okay. Um, I could, like, read a Spanish newspaper. So I studied it in college and in high school. I think most people would learn it. But that little bit of uh, saying goodbye in multiple languages is a Sound of Music reference. In case you haven't noticed, a lot of my humor is um, referential. Uh, <laughs> So that's uh, that's where I get that little little bit. I uh, I have attempted to teach myself Latin, um, but then I had kids, so that kind of cut into my time for that one. And I have worked on Italian. My wife's Italian, so uh, I've messed around with those, but I can't say that I speak them with any degree of fluency. All right. And so now let's go back and make another 180 back into history. <laughs> and so what physical historical sites have you been to so i've i try and you know this is a i didn't grow up in a particularly well-off family so the first i never flew on a plane until i was in my 20s um so i never saw too many places uh, so i've tried to make up for that since then so i've been to rome um and i've seen a number of historical sites there, both related to the roman empire and related to the renaissance and christianity um i've been to saint petersburg which was a really fabulous trip and I saw the Hermitage there and the fortress of the city, the Peter and Paul Fortress. I've been to London. I lived in London during college. I studied abroad there. So that was a really great experience for me. So there you see it all, right? The London Eye, yeah. which I think is like a worthless tourist trap. Um, <laughs> Westminster Abbey, which I think is an amazing place. Um, the Tower of London, which has a fun tour. I got to say, like, uh, it's a funny tour. They crack a lot of jokes. They keep it pretty light. I actually remember these guys on that tour. When the tour guide asked everybody where they were from, and he has the whole, you know, yeoman of the guard beef eater outfit on. So he calls these guys. Everybody's telling them where they're from. And I say, oh, I'm from New York. So these guys are standing next to me, and he says, oh, where are you guys from? And they just go, Jersey, yo. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Americans always identify um, where they're from by their state when they're overseas. It's kind of funny. Nobody ever says, I'm from the United States. <laughs> um, they say, I'm from XYZ state, um, as if the people they're talking to care. Uh, <laughs> So I've been, I've been, definitely been to some spots. I've been to Stockholm, which is a really beautiful city um, and has some really cool historical monuments in there. Most famously, there's this ship that sunk that they raised, a warship from the 17th century that they built a museum around. That's pretty cool. I've been to Edinburgh and seen Edinburgh Castle. That was a really fun visit with an incomprehensible tour guide. Scottish, <laughs> Scottish sometimes can be very hard to understand. 
I'd say those are the main ones. I'm planning to go to Italy next year. My wife's family lives in Italy. So uh, Florence is on the agenda for that trip. Nice. You can finally see the paintings I teach about. In yeah. <laughs> or at least some more of them. You know, seeing it in person is always something different than Absolutely. seeing it in the picture. Like even you look at today's class, we're talking about St. Peter's Basilica. Like having been there, it was, a, I think, a, you can really get a sense of like, yes, it is a really big place. And it does convey the greatness and grandeur of the church, which is what they were going for. You know, so you yeah. can kind of have that your own personal experience to draw on. Yeah. There's something special about viewing something as compared to somebody describing to you yeah. what something looks. I agree. I agree. And then you can really see it when you see it in person, it can clear up a lot of things like, oh, I didn't know it was that big or I didn't know it was that small. Um, a lot of people said about the Mona Lisa, like, oh, it's really <laughs> not very big. Uh, but other paintings are like enormous and you don't quite realize that. And then the sculptures in particular, I don't think you realize until you can get close up. Which now, sadly, in a lot of these things, you can't get that close up between the tourists and the security and, you know, that kind of thing. But a lot of those, it can be pretty impressive if you can get close up. All right. And so moving on to a bit more about history, um, like what does history mean to you? What is the main focus about it? So history to me, just I think other than just being interesting and I think like the human story of knowing what people did in the past um, is is just inherently interesting. I think knowing where you came from is really essential to knowing where you're going. So looking back into the past for lessons, and it's kind of a cliche thing about history repeating, but it helps put current events in context. In addition to, I think it's just inherent interest to know what it was like for people before us to have lived, like what they experienced is just kind of worth knowing. And uh, and that's really what it means for me. Like I, I study history because I think it's really worth knowing. I think it makes me a more complete person. So that's my humanist uh, <laughs> leaning shining through there. I would agree. History is probably like the most interesting subject out of all of school. It's fundamentally a story. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like, it's like I'm telling you this story about these other people and it just has something about it that is like, oh, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> And it makes you get a trivial pursuit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's probably better than most English stories, to be honest. Yeah, because a lot of times the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the funny things happen um, because it doesn't have to serve a story or a character. People just do things that maybe are not necessarily in service of some greater plot. Sometimes the bad guys win. Yeah. <laughs> People sometimes ask, why should they learn history? And again, I think like knowing the origins of something are fundamental to understanding uh, what's going on. So, for example, you take you take the circumstances that are going on right now with Turkey and, and Kurds. So the Kurdish people have been vying for their own state for 100 years. And in the aftermath of the Treaty of Versailles, it seemed like they were going to get one. And they didn't. And one of the reasons they didn't was because the Turkish state was able to kind of like put its act together under Ataturk. And prevented that from happening. And they kicked the Greeks out of the country and won this very violent, nasty war with the Greeks for control of Anatolia, like what we would call modern day Turkey. And the Turks were able to kind of stamp out Kurdish nationalism or at least Kurdish ideas of having their own state. But the nationalist feelings of the Kurds never went away. And they always felt kind of denied that they didn't get their state after the First World War. And, and the Arabs did. And the Jews did ultimately after the Second World War, but they never did. And instead, they got folded into this kind of bizarre agglomeration of Iraq. And they don't feel like they belong there. 
and even how that country is created is super convoluted between the French and the and the British. So understanding that this is a long-standing conflict. Erdogan didn't wake up the other day and say, you know what, I think I'm going to invade Kurdistan. It's part of a long-standing fear of the Turkish state ever since the end of the Ottoman Empire that the Kurds will break away, which will cut Turkey in half. And Turkey's already a nation that's lost in empire. The Turks control the vast amount of territory. Now they don't. So it's a Turkish national state that feels like it can't give up anymore. And as the Kurds grow stronger and gain more credibility, it's a direct threat to the Turkish state. And when you don't understand that, you can't really negotiate or between these two groups of people because you don't understand what they want. <laughs> they remember their history even if you don't. And, uh, and I think that's important. There are people who do remember where things came from, and there are longstanding issues. They maybe don't go back a 1,000 years, but they can go back a 100. And, uh, and that's longer than any of us have been alive. So you have to understand where people are coming from in order to understand what they want now. And I think that's important. Yeah, it also reminds me of like African conflicts, you know, after the start of the decolonization. Classic of the, case of this, yeah. Yeah. And it also reminds me of like how nationalist Spain kind of just rose up to power. They were like once this big empire that nobody could really stop. And they've been reduced to really just having like a few territories in the, nor in the north of Africa. And that kind of just like helped led to Francisco Franco and the Spanish Civil I think War. That's well said. Yeah, Spain went through a long and like difficult and embarrassing decline from being the greatest state in Europe to kind of being this like almost backwater. And Franco was really able to tap into that. Plus the latent fear of, uh, of communism among a lot of elites in Spain and a lot of just kind of devout Catholics who feared the atheistic tendencies of communism. And Franco was pretty good at kind of getting all that together. And the fact that he was the like, commander of the garrison in North Africa, the last colonial possession of yeah. Spain, that helped his cause dramatically. Opposition to the nationalists had a lot of problems getting together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of problems. And it didn't hurt that foreign nations, foreign nations really didn't help out because they also feared this quote-unquote communist element in the opposition to the nationalists and kind of hung them out to dry where Hitler and Mussolini were more than happy to intervene in the Spanish Civil War and commit some of the most famous war crimes of the, of the 20th century, looking at Guernica's bombing. So where fascist powers were very quick to line up with what they considered a co uh, kind of a fellow traveler in Franco, the Western nations, just like they did throughout the 30s, kind of like, well, you know, what can you do? And then you look at a time like today where a lot of people pussyfoot around these kind of authoritarian dictators as they expand their power, perhaps to our peril. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on revisionist history? Is it something good or something bad? So revisionist history, I think, is is valuable because it makes you rethink what you thought. And maybe you don't agree with it, but at least makes you examine your opinion about a particular historical event because they're willing to challenge the traditional interpretation of it. Um, there's a lot of events that have experienced revisionist history. Probably the most famous is the French. The French Revolution has a lot of revisionist history. Um, and probably the most famous example for our purposes is like the Howard Zinn People's History of the United States, which is it's an incomplete history of the United States, which he kind of comes out and says, like, you know, this is not the complete history because it focuses on the people that nobody cared about. So I think revisionist history is worthwhile, even if it doesn't persuade you, because it makes you think about a historical position that you hold and why you hold it and why you think it's true. And if your ideas can't stand up to any scrutiny, 
or any challenge, then they're not an idea worth having. Yeah, it's also kind of like this idea of like the Renaissance man, be complete and try to like gain as much knowledge about everything well possible. Said. Yeah, get it all, man. It can't yeah. hurt. And again, if you if your ideas can't stand up to challenge, then what are we talking about here? Then you don't have an idea. Yeah, you really just <laughs> you have, have a belief. A, yeah, you know, belief. and uh, and that's okay, but don't pass it off as some kind of legit ironclad historical truth. Yeah. So moving on to the end, uh, this is more about like. What's your favorite part of history? What would have to be like your favorite event or thing that happened this in is history? A, I get asked this a lot. This is a really hard question for me. Um, there's certain stuff I'm really expert on more so than others, and I think that's born of some interest. I'm really knowledgeable at the Roman Empire. Uh, it's a big source of, of interest of mine. I don't teach about it, sadly, but I do know a lot about it. And uh, modern European history, in essence what I teach in, in AP Euro, is really kind of the my main area of expertise. I know that my Middle Ages well, um, like the wars of religion, which are our next unit, uh, <laughs> I'm particularly knowledgeable about. And, um, and that's an area I've studied a lot on my own. And if I was actually going to go back to school and pick a specialty um, and like, you know, write books about it and get a PhD, I would com- probably complete my studies in Spanish and um, and study early modern Spanish history. It's a really big interest of mine. I read a lot about it. Like that's the Habsburgs and Philip II, and it's a, it's a huge interest. So like early modern Europe, early modern Spain is, is a major source of interest for me. That's great. Before we leave, would you like to uh, add anything else about you? Uh, I, I, I really enjoy being a teacher. Some days it's harder than others. I do try and make light of it. Because I know that there's other things going on in the world that are seemingly more serious. But I, but I got to tell you, one of the reasons I'm a teacher and one of the things I try and impart to my students is when you want to be good at something and you want to succeed, you have to try all the time. Like You always have to work at it. And that talent alone is never enough. That you have to develop any talent that you have in order to really achieve its potential. And if you rely too much on talent, you'll come to a point where it's not enough and you need to fall back on the skills and experience you've developed through really just honest effort. And that's a lesson that took me a long time to learn in my life because I'm a funny guy and I'm really quick on my feet. So that always got me out of a lot of stuff in high school. But the rubber hit the road in college, and I learned my lesson. And I want to just kind of impart that. Like, if you want to be excellent, you have to be excellent every day. And that's, uh, that's I think, my main takeaway. And I can't take credit for that one. That's Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Green, for this opportunity to interview you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.